sent my son off to practice with his sports team yesterday afternoon. Here in Columbus, Ohio, we're having a heat wave. And of course, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, so I've been lecturing him about how best to stay safe. This includes keeping six feet apart from his teammates, for example, or drinking as much water as he can manage. And he's old enough to understand why both of these are important right now, at least to some extent. But when I hand him yet another glass of water to chug pre-practice, he eyes me a little bit skeptically because in his mind, what's the big deal? Now, let's set aside the pandemic for a second and just focus on why, in general, it's wise to stay hydrated. Drinking enough water is important every day, and not just for kids, but for everyone. It regulates body temperature. It helps to lubricate joints. It keeps our organs in working order. And these are all things a young athlete would want, right? Water can even help the synapses in our brains to fire. It helps us to sleep better and to keep our moods in check. So hydration really is a big deal. I'm Mara Bowen, podcasting for Abbott Nutrition Health Institute, and I'm here today with Dr. Naman Khan, an assistant professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Community Health at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Khan leads the Body Composition and Nutritional Neuroscience Lab, which integrates knowledge in the disciplines of dietetic, body composition, and cognitive neuroscience to understand the interactions between lifestyle behaviors, abdominal adiposity, and cognitive and brain health in adults and children. He's here today to discuss a range of topics, including how fluid status and nutrition can affect the body at large, and the brain specifically. And he'll share the results of his recent investigation into how hydration and nutrition impact cognitive development and performance. Now, one quick thing to note before we begin, this recording may sound a little softer than you're used to hearing, and that's because we're still social distancing, dialing in for this recording rather than having a conversation in our studio. Dr. Khan, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Hello, Mara. Thank you for having me. Now, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about your research background and what inspired your current research interest? Sure. Um, you know, I'm a registered dietitian, and I've always had an interest in food and how it may impact our health. My graduate training focused on pediatric nutrition uh, and obesity, and during my postgraduate training, so during my postdoctoral years at the University of Illinois, I developed an interest in how nutrition may influence children's cognitive health. This interest was largely inspired by some of my experiences working in school settings during graduate school. Specifically, I was surprised at how much how school lunch and beverage policies were really not informed by evidence base in nutritional neuroscience or based on any understanding of specific nutrients and foods that could support optimal learning in children. So since then, my work has focused on research questions that provide insights into what specific aspects of a healthy diet pattern could be leveraged to support learning and achievement in uh, school-aged children. That's great. Thank you for sharing your background. And I'm wondering if you could explain to our listeners how your lab assesses brain health and performance in a research environment. So what we know is that cognitive performance encompasses many abilities. And, you know, different laboratories have different expertise and different abilities that they focus on. Our laboratory is specifically interested in children's ability for executive function, which is a, an umbrella term that encompasses many different abilities, specifically inhibition, working memory, and cognitive flexibility, or what we call multitasking. Now, these abilities provide the basis uh, or the foundation for more complicated abilities like reasoning, problem solving, and planning. And we also know that these abilities, um, these executive function or cognitive control abilities are important for children's academic achievement, success, and also success in their jobs or you know, vocational duties down the road. Uh, so our laboratory has studied these abilities for cognitive control from 
mostly using computerized tasks that require children to essentially play these really boring video games, especially compared to what the, sort of the video games that the, the children have at home. Uh, what we do is essentially create these small tasks on the computer screen where children have to respond to you know, stimuli. What they're doing is either relying on attention, uh, inhibition, or some aspects of memory to successfully complete those tasks. And uh, as they do that, we record how accurate the children are during these tasks and uh, how fast they're responding. And sometimes we also have the opportunity to collect EEG data as they do these tasks, which tells us a little bit more about the uh, neuroelectric strategies that children are employing as they do these tasks. Uh, so that's through you know behavioral performance, which is usually accuracy and reaction time, and some neuroelectric measures, we can get a good idea of really how the child's brain is executing these particular tasks. Now, have you found that there are lifestyle factors that tend to be associated with brain health and performance? We have. So much of our work is built on research that was actually done in the area and is still being conducted in the area of physical activity, aerobic fitness, and cognitive health in uh, pre-adolescent children. That was the work that I did in my postdoctoral research with my mentor, Charles Hillman, at the University of Illinois, now at Northeastern University. So much of my knowledge for, in terms of neuroscience and how health factors affect cognitive function really was built out of understanding of the importance of physical activity. So what we've done in the laboratory is take much of that methodology and the paradigms that we use to study the activity effects on cognition, but then also expand the pie, so to speak, and think about how diet can also play an important role in uh, explaining these executive functions in children. So what we have done is look at, you know, in addition to physical activity and aerobic fitness, we are also looking at nutrition and obesity. These are, of course, interrelated health factors that uh, have been studied in, studied in the context of physical health and chronic disease risk for a long time. But what we have only recently started to be looking at is how these factors can impact children's ability for cognitive functions. Can we talk a little bit more about that? I know you just mentioned that physical activity and dietary factors like hydration and lutein can influence brain performance. So speaking first about hydration, do we have an idea for how common suboptimal hydration is in children? We actually don't have a very good idea about the degree of actual sub suboptimal hydration in children. One of the challenges in this area has been that, surprisingly, water intake and hydration status using biological markers has been really understudied in across the lifespan, but especially in children. This is really surprising because uh, water comprises the largest proportion of our total body mass, and we know it's essential for life, and it plays a vital role in numerous physiological processes that you so eloquently described earlier but has been helpful in recent years. So as the, there has been an emergence of some large studies that do indicate that, that at least perhaps 50% of children in the United States exhibit urine concentration levels that uh, are indicative of dehydration. So one of the, the best markers of uh, physiological status in terms of water turnover in the body is the degree of concentration in urine, so how the soluble load in urine. And what we're learning from some studies that have actually collected large enough samples in the United States, I think we had to read a study uh, that did that in, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, what they learned is that over 50% of the children actually had urine concentration levels that would be indicative of dehydration. And this is something that we're seeing uh, globally as more data sets have emerged, uh, have emerged. So it's really a global issue. But what we're learning is that we see a pattern where m many children are inadequately hydrated. Thank you for explaining that. And to get back to your research, what was the aim of your hydration research? Uh, we were interested in addressing several key questions. The first question that we were interested in addressing is whether habitual uh, status uh, in, in terms of hydration, whether those markers could be related to children's ability for executive functions. 
And we were also interested in determining whether if you change that urine hydration status using water consumption of a period of several days, would you see changes in, uh, in, in those executive functions in children? And prior to this study that we conducted, there wasn't any study in literature that had actually manipulated water intake over several days in children. Uh, there had been some work that had looked at acute intake of water, but you know, no one had really gone and, and manipulated water inter- intake over uh, several days and looked at cognitive function. Can you review the methodology that you use to answer your research questions? For instance, what types of participants were included and excluded? Uh, For this particular study, we recruited children between 9 to 11 years of age. Uh, as a male and female participants. Uh, we excluded participants who have you know, neurological or developmental disorders, uh, where children may have difficulty in, in completing our cognitive tasks. And beyond that, it was really just the age range uh, that was an exclusionary factor for this. And what we did in this study, we employed a crossover control uh, study where we had three conditions. One of the conditions was so essentially the same group of children did these three different interventions or conditions. And in one condition, we basically had them just maintain their habitual intake of water for a four-day period, and then we measured cognitive function on the fifth day. And then we also had them collect their urine over a 24-hour period on the fourth day, the day before they came into the laboratory for the cognitive testing. Uh, The other two conditions were manipulating conditions where we asked the children to drink more water, uh, the higher dose, which was 2.5 liters per day for four days. And in the low water condition, we had them drink uh, 0.5 liters per day uh, for those four days. With that approach, we're able to see how children deal with not just having an idea of how their habitual status is related to cognition, but also what happens when you expect them to drink more or less in terms of hydration markers and cognitive function. And what did your results show? What we observed, as expected, was that the hydration aspects of the intervention were successful. So what we observed is the children, as relative to their habitual hydration levels, when they drank more water, they improved. And when they drank less, we were able to reduce their hydration or increase their uh, urine concentration, which is an indicator of poor hydration status. So this was the first study to do this in over several days as an intervention protocol. So what we know is that even though we we all assume that water can improve hydration, and it can, one of the questions has always been about the dosage and how much water is really adequate and, you know, we should aim for. So this is just one study that at least tells us that drinking that 2.5 liters per day was able to improve these children's uh, hydration status. And then moving into the cognitive findings of the study, what we learned was that there was a significant association between the performance on the cognitive tasks and the urine hydration markers. Specifically, uh, children who are better hydrated tended to do better on the cognitive flexibility task, which is essentially measuring the ability for multitasking in the children. And interestingly, when we actually looked at the changes in cognitive performance after the children went through these three different conditions, the benefits of drinking more water were particularly evident for the task that involved multitasking or the cognitive flexibility task. We did not see significant benefits or changes in either the attention or inhibition task, which was interesting because it told us that the benefits of water uh, intake seemed particularly selective for certain aspects of cognitive function, uh, particularly multitasking. Now, did anything surprise you about your findings and your research? 
Absolutely. You know, we were surprised. The majority of the children in our sample actually had poor hydration, even in their habitual state. So when the study started, there wasn't a nationally available publication that had actually in the United States to give us an idea of what to expect as far as urine hydration in our study sample. So one of the first things we noticed was that, you know, almost 60% of our participants, even without any manipulation of water, just in so the habitual lifestyle, exhibited a level of urine concentration that would put them probably in the dehydrated state. So what that meant is that it actually was a bit of a challenge for our participants to drink more water because that was a big change for them from a habitual standpoint. And they actually found it easier to reduce their water intake because that level of intake was similar to what they were drinking habitually. So even though we were successfully able to reduce their hydration status using the fluid restriction, we saw a lot more improvement when they drank more water than, than reduction in hydration following the fluid restriction. So which, which is really, of course, a concern because it tells us that a lot of children are already in, in a state of you know, hypohydration or inadequate hydration. Even a dose of 0.5 liters, which is really just two cups of water, is pretty similar to what results in hydration status. is pretty common for uh, these children. So what learnings from this research can clinicians apply to their practice? And also, could you maybe review the fluid needs for infants and children and adults, for example? Sure. For infants, of course, the, the values are smaller and then they increase with age uh, when you go into childhood and then adulthood. So in, in infants, the recommendations are about 0.7, 0.8 liters per day until 12 months. You know, in pre-adolescence and school-age children, so the ones that we worked with in our study, adequate intake is recommended at 2.4 liters for, per day for male and 2.1 liters per day for female, so slightly over 2 liters per day. Of, so those are the you know, recommendations. Uh, these values are not really based on any particular health benefit. So we don't really know if additional water intake is really necessary to then really get the benefits of additional water consumption. Uh, this, of course, is a level that's recommended to for the population um, to avoid uh, certain inadequacies, but we don't really know what's the optimal dose for uh, health benefit. For clinicians, I think it's important to first emphasize that when we discuss a healthy lifestyle, water should be part of that discussion. It is often the overlooked macronutrient. And I can also you know, attest to this since even my training in dietetics, you know, we really didn't cover water in a lot of detail. It's also important to recognize that children in particular are a high-risk group for dehydration because they depend on adults to provide those opportunities for them to get adequate water intake. We also know that they have high metabolic rates, which may impact water losses, and they often have poor sensitivity to their thirst mechanisms that would encourage them to seek water when they experience severe fluid losses. So therefore, it's important to appreciate that water is an integral part of a healthy pattern and or lifestyle, and that it's especially challenging for children to keep their water intake at the adequate levels. For the cognitive lessons as a key takeaway from our research was that we can improve hydration status using the dosage that was utilized in this study, uh, which was novel, and that also it seems like certain aspects of brain function are particularly sensitive to improvement in uh, hydration. What other nutrients have emerged to improve cognitive development in children? So this is an, you know, it's an interesting um, Probably the most fascinating aspect of conducting nutrition research is that nutritional science can be studied at different levels. In terms of nutrients, uh, you know, I think the literature supports the idea that a healthy diet of cognitive health is comprised of multiple nutrients with neurocognitive potential. You know, we've done work in, in the area of carotenoids, specifically examining the effects of lutein and, of course, our topic of discussion today, which is largely focused on water. These are, of course, just two pieces of the puzzle. Other researchers have demonstrated that several nutrients play important roles in brain development and cognitive function. In children, 
children, including choline, DHA, uh, natural vitamin A. You know, we know that micronutrients like iron can play very important roles uh, throughout development as well. We also have a good idea that, you know, we know that deficiencies in any essential nutrient could also have impacts uh, on cognitive development. So what we know is that there's an emerging evidence that really points to multiple nutrients. Uh, and interestingly, in recent years, uh, there's been work that's focused on combinations of nutrients or work that's come from uh, studies that have looked at nutrient pattern analyses, uh, which tell us that really focusing on single nutrients, while it has its advantages, you know, really misses the big picture, which is that it's likely that really multiple nutrients in combination explain more variability in cognitive abilities and brain health rather than looking at just single nutrients. Could you tell us a bit more about your lutein research and what role lutein plays in cognitive performance? So lutein is carotenoid that's found in large quantities in green leafy vegetables. And also it's found in really a variety of different foods uh, in uh, in small amounts, uh, particularly bioavailable amount forms in eggs and avocados. Interestingly, lutein preferentially uh, relative to other carotenoid accumulates in the macula uh, where we know that it's protective against photooxidative stress and serves as a blue light filter. We also know that lutein preferential accumulates in the brain, and increasing work has shown that persons with greater lutein in the eye, which is correlated with brain lutein, exhibit greater cognitive function. Our laboratory, laboratory in uh, collaboration with our colleagues at the University of Georgia, Dr. Randy Hammond and Dr. Lisa Renzi Hammond, was the first to demonstrate that we, re- we can reliably measure lutein in the eye, what's called macular pigment optical density, non-invasively in children. And then since then, and this is work that was conducted during my postdoc uh, years, uh, we have utilized that macular pigment optical density, or MPOD, as a way to explain variability in a variety of different cognitive tasks uh, in children, for example, in attention, in inhibition, as well as uh, academic achievement. Essentially, what this work has done is it's extended work that's shown that lutein and MPOD could be important predictors of cognitive function in older populations, that we can replicate that work even in uh, school-age children. So what level of intake is associated with beneficial outcomes? Fortunately, there's no specific dietary guidance for lutein intake. We're hoping that our work will inform future guidance on lutein and build on the work of others. Uh, However, based on previous clinical trials, we know that most people can improve their lutein status in the macula using dietary approaches or supplementation within two to three months by simply adding a serving of a lutein-rich vegetable or a daily egg or an avocado. We also know that supplementation can be effective. That's been done in just a variety of different dosages. However, as far as the cognitive benefits of, of lutein intake, we have a lot less knowledge. So we know that we can improve MPOD uh, with lutein consumption, uh, cognitive functions, uh, randomized control trials have recently emerged, but we don't have, we need certainly need more. Uh, in those studies that have been successful in improving cognitive function, uh, the lutein dose has been about 12 milligrams and uh, predominantly it's been done through supplementation approaches. 12 milligrams is about the equivalent of what you'd find in a serving of cooked And I have one final question for you. What additional research do you think should be done that could be helpful in this space in advancing this research? Yeah, I certainly think we need additional clinical trials, randomized control trials in pediatric populations. This is a uh, an emerging field. We're still in an early stage understanding of really the potential of uh, of, uh, of of lutein, and uh, additional randomized control trials would go a long way in addressing questions about specificity as far as what particular cognitive abilities improve, um, and also address questions about the doses and uh, the, the best ways to improve um, you know, lutein status using supplementation or foods. Great. Well, Dr. Khan, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I think this was fabulous information, and you are welcome on our podcast anytime. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you.
And for our listeners, thank you for joining us today. Be sure to visit ANHI.org for more nutrition science education and resources, including more podcasts, which you can find on ANHI.org under resources and then on the podcast and videos tab, or by clicking the community link on the ANHI.org homepage to find podcasts there as well. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.